This is the Unsung Interview, introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. My guest this time around is Phil Neal, who enjoyed a 47-year career in professional sport. Having played 369 games for Lincoln City and 354 first-class matches for Worcestershire, he's believed to be the last man to play both professional football and professional cricket at the same time. But it's his post-playing role that we're mostly discussing in this episode, first as county-level coach and then with the England A setup, before moving on to become England Cricket's first-ever operations manager. Appointed to help out Duncan Fletcher and Captain Nasser Hussain in 1999, it's a role he stayed in for over 20 years. During our chat, which took place as the early stages of the 2023 Cricket World Cup unfolded in India, the man who became known to England's top cricketers as Uncle Phil talks about his versatile yet integral role behind the scenes. He recalls his memorable experiences, including five Ashes series victories, the 2010 T20 World Cup triumph, and of course, the famous 2019 World Cup win at Lords. Phil describes being peppered in the nets by Freddie Flintoff, navigating a floundering Michael Vaughan through an Indian airport, and reveals which cricketer's bag was the only one he lost in over two decades. There are also tales from that infamous Germany boot camp ahead of the 2010 Ashes. But we begin our conversation talking about Phil's unique claim to fame as the last man to play professionally in both cricket and football. I believed I was the last one doing it full time. I said that at a cricket society the other day and, one, and a guy said, oh, I think Tony Cotty, who played for Gumborgan and, uh, and also played football, reckons he played a game after you did at football. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, in terms of playing 30-odd football games a year and, and playing full-time in the, in the first team at the cricket, then I think I probably was the, the last one. And Graham Taylor was instrumental in that. I mean, I, I learned a great deal from Graham. He was a fantastic manager. But he was prepared to tolerate my cricket. But we just had two overlapping contracts. There was no, nothing specific about who took priority or which side took priority. So it generally worked that the team I was playing with, if they were in with a chance of, of winning something or challenging for promotion, I would stay and see that through and then join the other team later. And that worked okay for a while. And then Graham left. A chap called Willie Bell came in, who was a, a Scotsman who didn't really see eye to eye with me on cricket. And I read while I was still at Worcester, because Worcester were challenging for a trophy, while I was still at Worcester, I read that I was suspended. Even when I came back, he wouldn't put me in the first team, wouldn't even put me in the second team. And I was just running cross country every day. And I was I was very close to leaving the club. I was going to give up football and concentrate on cricket. And then Colin Murphy came in. Colin had been trying to buy me when he'd been at, at Notts County and Derby. And uh, Colin put me straight back in the first team and sort of resurrected my football career. And all worked smoothly for a while until I became captain at Worcester. And then it became obvious that I had to be there at the start of the season. So the first year I was captain, 1982, my first game was going to be at Headingley against Yorkshire in the Benson Edges Cup. And uh, I left Lincoln and, and concentrated on the practice for the cricket. And then on the Thursday before the Saturday game, I got a telegram from uh, Colin saying, I understand your position, but I'm sorry to inform you that directors have told me you will be at Chester at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon to play football. So the first time where there was a real crunch, and bearing in mind, you know, even though I was captain at Worcester at that stage, I was still earning more money playing football than I was cricket. So I turned up at, at Headingley, walked out and looked at the pitch, left myself out and made Norman Gifford captain and got in my car and set off for Chester. <laughs> Which would have worked fine apart from the fact that I, I hit a traffic jam on the M56 and no mobile phones in those days so I had virtually no, no way of letting Lincoln know that I was on my way 
you had to declare your team at at two thirty for a three o'clock start. So when I got, when I got off the motorway eventually, it was about twenty past uh, two. So I, I went to a phone box, picked up the phone, and it had been vandalised. The phone came off in my hand; the wire had been cut. So then I got back in my car. The first people I saw in their gardens, I, I got out the car, ran up the drive, and said, "Can I please use your phone?" <laughs> Connected to the secretary at Lincoln. And uh, they put me in the team. I arrived about 20 to 3, walked in the dressing room. Someone had got my kit on. I had to, we had to, <laughs> had to get it off and make sure that, uh, that it was okay for me to play. Um, and we won the game. Um, the local reporter was a Yorkshire fan. He came in and said, oh, Yorkshire only got 220, but you're 60 for 6. And so I was driving back thinking, you know, this is going to be a nightmare. The game's going to be well over before I get back. And um, Chris Old was the captain of Yorkshire, and at 60 for 60, he gambled on bowling us out and bowled his overs all the way through. And it left him with no one to bowl the last over, and we wanted about eight or nine to win. And um, Jeff Boycott bowled the last over with his cap on, <laughs> cap on backwards and medium pace in-swingers. Oh, and and uh, Paul Pridgenar, number 11, slogged him out of the ground for six to win the game off the last ball. So all was... All was happy there, but then we got to the next day when we had a follow-up game in the Sunday League with Yorkshire. And um, it was, do I carry on as non-playing captain or do I replace the guy that, that played for me on the Saturday who'd actually scored 45 and helped us win the game? So obviously I couldn't stay as non-playing captain, so I left him out and, and put myself in and got some runs on that. Then we won the game. But oh, good. That, it, it was obviously the beginning of the end of the football and cricket. And... We, I continued for another two or three years after that, but then had to pack it in and uh, concentrated full-time on the cricket. It's fascinating to listen to because it feels like such an alien concept these days, you know, when you consider what's required of the, the professional game in both football and cricket to even consider the fact that you could have someone doing both. Well, I think the Nevilles were meant to be good cricketers, but, you know, conversely, are there any cricketers you came across who were maybe, you know, hoping to get into, into football? I know they do the pretty much kickabout, don't they, on the, on the pitch? Yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of guys around who would be capable of, of doing it. He just became impossible. I mean, he got guys like Alistair Hignall who could play rugby as well, you know, played international rugby and played county cricket. It's just the contracts now and the, the seasons overlap so much that it's virtually impossible to do. One of the tasks that Alistair Cook sat down with me at the end, towards the end of my time with England, sat down and we were rained off one day and he said, come on, Phil, let's work it out. You know, how many days have you spent on a, on a sports field? <laughs> We worked it out, I think, that I'd spent basically 10 years of my life, 24 hours a day, day and night, on, on a cricket field, never mind getting into the football. People said to me that, you know, you might have played for England if you hadn't played football and, and vice versa. You know, they said I could have played in the first division if I hadn't played cricket. But, you know, I never got those opportunities. There was, there was talk of it. And if I'd been presented with that chance, then I've had a tough decision to make. But mm-hmm. I loved them both equally. So that's why I continued playing them both. So then moving into your post-playing career as operations manager for England Cricket, was that the first time that role had ever been invented, essentially? Nobody else had done the job. They used to have a coach, and he used to have to get involved with a lot of administration. You know, David Lloyd was the coach when I first got involved with the England side, but Duncan would have ended up with a lot of administration stuff if I wasn't there. Or they'd have had to send one of the, the board members who would be a jacket-and-tie person who would be in the committee rooms. He'd be being entertained by the the board, but not actually in the dressing room. And I think they felt that they'd get more out of the players with someone actually in the dressing room who could understand what was going on. And the beauty of the job for me was the fact that Duncan Fletcher was the coach, but we also had a physio, a fitness trainer, a media person. And that that was about it, really. 
So in terms of training, I was in all but name assistant coach and we used to do all the slip catching practice. I used to throw in the nets, nota tail enders when, when Duncan was with the main guys. So I would come out and if we were batting, I'd go in the nets with the tail enders. And I really enjoyed that. And I think, you know, as I look back, I really enjoyed those first five years with Duncan where I took on more, you know, had a fair bit of responsibility on the cricket side as well. I became the throwdown guy. If someone was out of nick, Phil, can you come and throw to me in the nets? I just want to get some rhythm going. And there was some, some memorable time. I remember Paul Collingwood asked me to come and throw to him. I threw for ages to him at Adelaide. And he went out and got 220. And Freddie Flintoff, I did some throws with him, which was a nightmare because Freddie's way of practicing was, I only want to hit straight drives. I just want to hit the ball hard and straight. So you throw it and get out of the way as quick as you can. I've got quite a few, <laughs> got quite a few bruises on my shins from Freddie peppering it back at me. There was one period where he was out of form and then he got some runs in the one-day series and won the man of the series. And he presented me with his Jerry Boehm of, of champagne as thanks for, for getting him into Nick. You know, So it was nice when those little bits of appreciation came back. Operations managers are very kind of you know catch-all term, I guess. So it would be good to get a bit more insight into, you know, what, what a typical day looks like really as ops manager. What 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 are the sort of tasks you've got to do? I mean, it depended how you wanted to do it. I, I mean, I was very much hands-on in the dressing room and, and probably created a rod for my own back because I did make the transport of, of their kit very easy for the players by doing most of it myself. A day would consist of go to the ground in advance of the of the group and, and make sure that everything was set up at the ground, that net bowlers were there, that the nets were in place. And when I first started, I used to sit and watch the cricket. And then I'd get back to my hotel room at night and realise that I'd still got all my admin work to do. Uh, over the years, I learned to to probably take more of a back seat and sit in the back. People would say, you know, I, I was looking for you on the balcony. I said, well, you wouldn't see me there. I'd be, I'd be in the back doing some work. My way of doing the job was just to plan. And I, and I think that was something I was born with. It, it helped me with cricket when I was captain to plan for all eventualities and that was what I did with the operations manager's job and over the years you plan for so many different things that when something crops up unexpectedly you've probably already been through that once before or you've got a contingency plan in place. Some places were really easy to tour in the early days obviously touring was more problematic, um, less ability to communicate with the the ECB back at home uh, to organise flights and things like that. Um, but as time moved on and the communications got better, you could pretty well sort things out. If a player had to go home with an injury, I could ring ECB and get them to sort it out, whereas in the early days, it was for me to, to do that. I remember going to an airport with Michael Vaughan in India. He'd got a knee injury. I got to the airport and I said, OK, you'll have to go in by yourself now, and he was lost because no, nobody had ever been to an airport without me being there to sort out passports and everything. <laughs> and that was something I used to do at the start. I used to collect all the passports so there was no risk of anybody losing them. And it, it took me a long time to actually give that up and trust them. But, I mean, one, <laughs> there would always be somebody who said, I have no idea where my passport is. And I had a, the first, first place to look was, have you looked in your blazer, which you haven't touched since the start of the tour? And there it would be in the inside pocket of the blazer from when we arrived in the first place. And became known as Uncle Phil. Uh, that, as the, the years went on, Uncle Phil was um, a term I, I accepted quite readily. My job was to make the, the job so much easier for the coach and the captain so that they could just concentrate on the cricket and not have to think about any logistics. You know, and, and because I was a cricket person, I could understand what they were going to do and what they were going to need. Some of the best times were where I've been able to play a part in planning for something. So the 2019 World Cup, which we won, 
for me to be able to early on take a, a have a meeting with Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan and say, right, let's look at this month's schedule. It's going to be, you know, the guys are going to need to get home from time to time. So let's have a look at the schedule and plan in the time so that I can work out the hotels when we're not going to have people there and we're going to get home for two or three days or when we're all going to be needing to be in the hotels. And, and just for me, that little bit of input into that at the early stages, everything worked really smoothly on that trip. And it just helped me to feel part from off the field, part of that victory and that success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned the 2019 World Cup. Obviously, that was that was in England. So I'm guessing it was somewhat easier to arrange than some of the places that you must have gone to over the years. What, what were some of the toughest places to travel to? Looking back at... India was probably the challenge. I looked on, back on some of my reports and in India, I wrote at the start of several tours that this is the most challenging tour of all. I looked at one time and we actually, within a, a, an 18-month period, did, did India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka in, in one block uh, as our away tours. And, and they, were, they were all challenging, but I would say India was probably the most chaotic. In the old days, you didn't have much dealing with the main board. You dealt with local cricket associations. So every venue you went to, you got a different liaison officer and, and, and different issues to deal with. Sometimes you felt they were trying to make things as difficult as possible. And sometimes it was just that things were so chaotic from their point of view that when we arrived on tour, they hadn't actually planned for our tour. They hadn't made any preparations. Nothing was in place. So I, I quite often land and not have a liaison officer to start with, you know, so... You got by as best you could with the the local association trying to put practice arrangements together for you, but um, there, were, there were a couple of early ones in, in 2001. Two was my first tour of India, and at the end of it, ECB actually paid me a bonus for all the hassle that I'd had during the time because they just tried to make things as difficult as possible. And were they were they doing that for a sporting advantage, or was it just because they weren't very organised? A combination of the two, I think. Um, not very organised at the start, um, and the Indian team weren't there. And there was one issue in in Calcutta, particularly where the Indian team were away playing somewhere else, and they put us on an outground in Calcutta for practice. And the facilities weren't very good, and uh, we wanted to practice at Eden Gardens at the main ground. But they were obviously trying to stop us getting advanced use of the ground before the Indian team got back. So they came up with all sorts of reasons for why we couldn't and, and it was down to security and, and I was having meetings with the security guy and asking him questions and he said, no, it's nothing to do with security. Security's fine, we're fine about it. So then they started putting it in the press that uh, that we were being really awkward and that we were um, leaking things to the press and, and I wasn't talking to the press at all, it was them leaking it to the press and then saying it was me that had done it. So, you know, bearing in mind, I was only one or two years into the job at this stage and uh, yeah, it was getting quite stressful. You know, we put up with it as best we could and that was, you had no choice really. You kept fighting your corner, but um, that was all you could do. But over the years, you know, I, I still get Christmas cards from some of my Indian liaison officers now. It, it improved dramatically over the years. The other place that was always a challenge and, and it was a word I heard quite a lot was the West Indies. Different islands, uh, different currencies, different SIM card for every island for each person, different liaison officer, hotels that think generally in the West Indies, they have great beaches and nice hotels on beaches and they expect you to think that's great. And the customer service sometimes goes by the by. <laughs> and uh, so you'd, I'd go to my contact at the at the West Indies Cricket Board if I, if I couldn't get it sorted with the liaison officer and, and 
if he said to me, well, yeah, that's, that's one of our challenges, then I pretty well knew there was no way of sorting it out. Challenge meant it was impossible to do. It just wouldn't get sorted. So a nice place to tour, but um, by the end for me, I, I wasn't sorry if I missed a West Indies tour. And I, and I look back and realise that some of the tours, when it became time that I needed a break and to take a tour off and someone else to take over, I missed two or three West Indies tours on the trot and, and wasn't sorry to do so. Right. One of the occasions where um, we would arrive and I would say we'd get checked through and, and the lads would get, I'd send the lads to the bus and say, it's okay, I've got some porters to help me. Uh, you guys go back to the hotel and I'll get the bags sorted and bring them along as soon as I've got them on the baggage van. And then find that the porters were lifting the West Indies bags and not my bags. And, and I was at one stage in Trinidad. 140 bags on the carousel and just me to, sh- to get them off and get them onto trolleys Jeez. and get them to, onto a baggage van. So it was quite a lengthy, a lengthy Yeah, spread. yeah, I, I, don't, I do not envy that role, given the pains of baggage in, in airports. Did you ever lose bags? No, I, I, lost, I lost one and that was in England, remarkably. Uh, and I was very proud of that record that I'd never lost a bag. And I found bags in some, you know, we, we did lose bags, but I would go to a hotel and say, can you check? the room next door to our rooms and can you check the rooms that are empty at the moment and we'd find a bag in there that had been in the rush put in a wrong room but unfortunately we were moving from during a one-day series from Trent Bridge to Southampton and Adil Rashid came up to me and said where's my duffel bag which got my one-day kit in it well we were were playing tests at the time the one-day series was to follow so it wasn't critical but it was an issue, and, and we never found that bag. I tracked back through Trent Bridge and checked everything that happened at Southampton and never found that bag. So that's one that, that got away. In 20-plus years, though, if, if you just lost one bag, that's, I'd say that's a pretty pretty decent record. Yeah, Although Adil Rashid yeah, might disagree, but... <laughs> I don't think he was bothered. He got some new kit anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one that will never be explained, I'm afraid, but a disappointing one because I was proud of my record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to these tours abroad, you know, you've mentioned things like the baggages and, and, and booking the hotels and communication, but then you've also got these additional aspects. You, you know, you, the security, particularly in, in, in some parts of the world where England teams still don't travel due to security concerns. Food, you've got to be you're very careful in, in you know, how you eat and what you eat. And then obviously there's the there's the the key aspect is you've got a squad of twenty thirty something blokes away from home for several months and outside of the games are trying to keep themselves entertained, stop from getting bored. How how does all that impact on the whole morale and and mindset of a tour? Well, I mean, all of those ingredients are they weren't all my responsibility. As as we developed, we we got more and more management on board. So. You know, initially we didn't take a doctor, so if someone got ill, you look into an Indian doctor or a West Indian doctor to try and prescribe what's going on and, and trust him when he says whether someone's fit to play or not, you know. Mm-hmm. So the old argument used to be, well, the, the local doctors know the local diseases, so they'll be better equipped with it, but, you know, that didn't really work for us. So we ended up with a doctor, then we got a security man, and we went through various processes with the security guide. And obviously, you have, to, you have a duty of care to make sure the players are safe at all times. When there was a, a security risk and we were considering subcontinent tours, the security that was provided by the host board at those levels was, was second to none. You know, there'd be roads closed. It would be presidential security we would get in Pakistan or India if there was any risk at all. But we started carrying our own security guy with us. And for a while we used an agency, in which meant we got different people along and they weren't necessarily cricket people. And I found myself in India a couple of times where these guys had, had upset the police 
by being too direct with the police and they'd embarrassed the, the head police guy by challenging him in front of his, his lower order. And you just can't do that because they, they can't lose face and then they, you get to a logjam. So I found myself mediating quite a lot in, in situations like that. And eventually we, we managed to secure the services of a guy called Reg Dickerson, who had been security man for Australia. And Reg works and still works with the England team. Now he's a, a consultant and, and puts people in, but he used to travel with us all the time. And Reg was fantastic because he knew the cricket setup and, and you could trust him uh, implicitly. And he would look after the guys, you know, if they were going out at night, he would be around and know what was know where they were going and what was going on. So that side of things was taken up. The doctor side was taken up. The entertainment was left pretty much down to the players themselves, the, you know, the amusement. We'd try and organise trips, try and organise golf days if they wanted to play golf. Generally, in terms of my job, my job started when everybody else was looking to play. You know, at, at the end of the game, people would be celebrating if we'd won something, and I was thinking about the transfer, transfer the next day and getting the bags out of the dressing room and all that sort of stuff. If the team had a day off, it usually meant that something needed organising for the day off. So they used to take the mickey out of me because every spare moment I did get, I used to just go and sit by myself by the pool and read my book. And uh, I got accused of being a, a sun worshipper and was renowned for it. But it was just my way of getting a little bit of space and, and just once I'd got everything organised for them, I didn't really want to be involved in it because it meant if I was there, I'd still be organising. So just to get, a, just to get away and, and have a bit of peace and quiet, the, the pool and the book was my, uh, my saviour from time to time. Did you find that difficult then as someone who'd, who'd obviously been a player in amongst a squad like that and all of a sudden you're now having to be the the organiser who doesn't necessarily take part in any of the fun stuff? I mean, the, as time went on, age became a factor as well. You know, the guys were 20, 30 years younger than me sometimes and, and, and I wasn't able to, to be involved in this. I didn't want to be involved in the same sort of things that they wanted to be involved in. I think initially, as I said, I started watching the cricket all the time. I was still wanting to be a player and a, and, a, and a coach. And then the job changed over time as we got more and more support staff, coach, you know, probably three or four coaches going on each trip as, you know, specialist bowling coaches. So my opportunities to get involved in the cricket practices got less and less uh, as my age and my ability to throw at the right pace became less and less as well. So I then found that I was doing an operations job and was just on a totally different wavelength. You know, it's just, it's natural, I suppose. You're 20, 30 years different to the guys. You're going to be interested in different things. You listen to different music. You you want to do different things when you go out in the evening. We we went on a, one of the things that we did on uh, in preparation for a tour of Australia, uh, Andy Flower decided that, the team was pretty good going to Australia for 2010-11, but we needed an extra ingredient. It's a bit more team spirit. So he set up this training camp with Reg, and I wasn't allowed to know anything about it. There was only Reg and, and Andy Flower knew what was going on. I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know what flights we were on, nothing. I didn't know what clothing we needed to take with us. And it drove me absolutely bonkers because I felt I always needed to know everything that was going on. And at times people say, well, why do you need to know that? And I just needed to know that the media people weren't going to be planning to have an interview with someone who'd got a medical appointment or had got a practice arranged. Or I just needed to know all the different ingredients, but people struggled to come to grips with that concept. But that was how I did my, my planning. And uh, this tour was fascinating. And, and I tried to do as much as I could, but it was a very physical tour. We, we were you know, out in the wilds and camping. And there's, there's a photo, I don't know if you've seen the... the 
film they did, The Edge, which yeah. was about that thing. Well, somewhere in there, there's a, there's a shot of the lads around the fire, the campfire at night, and I'm sat about 20 yards away by myself. And I was really ill at that. The lads often say, oh, good of you to be part of the team then, Phil. <laughs> I was sick as a dog at that stage, absolutely exhausted because we'd been, we'd been running around all day. And, and I was just absolutely shattered. And I'd, I'd gone there not feeling very well, actually. But, yeah, this, so this uh, is the, that kind of infamous boot camp thing, wasn't it? it, it yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, did, it was, did you have to take was, part in it as well, did you? I went along and, uh, you know, there were there was various physical challenges and I, and I was taking part in them all. And it was, it was difficult for me because I suddenly found that I was, we'd go off on a run and I was running at my, what I thought was my best pace and suddenly I'd find myself at the back and I was always used to running at the front. But I, as I said, I was giving the lads 30 years. And there were times where you'd find stuff a bit tough. <laughs> we got into Germany we got into minibuses and we'd, we'd no idea we'd been going to Germany, but we got into these minibuses and set off into, into a forest, basically. But we pulled up at the side of the road and it was right, get changed into your gear. So we're changing at the side of the road. And there's, there's a German family in a camper van there just sat having a cup of tea and they're watching all these guys getting stripped off and changed in the lay-by at the side of the road. And we set off into this forest and the... Um, Reg had assembled a, a group of Australian policemen who we, we learned to hate, and they were our taskmasters. Reg collected all our phones and watches and took them to his hotel, which is where he stayed for the duration of the, of the camp. And he had the nerve to complain later on that he couldn't sleep at night because our phones kept going off and waking him up. <laughs> so we set off into this forest and... They made us pick up some poles of, of wood, some telegraph poles, that they'd, and we, we were carrying these on our shoulders. And they said, the rules are you call everybody by their surname. You can't call first names or anything. It's just Mr. Neil or Mr. Collingwood or whatever. So we're carrying these logs, and, and you had to, in turn, go from the back to the front. So it, it, it was like a rotor. And at one stage, I found myself at the back with all the weight of this this pole on my shoulders and as we were about to pass it on I said Collie Collie I'm struggling with this can you just go hold for a minute and the guy said stop I said oh no <laughs> why have we stopped because I called him Collie instead of Mr Collingwood correct everybody on you, everybody down on the ground 100 press ups and this became the routine for the rest of the trip the lads had been out the night before we flew to the Players Association dinner in London and they'd got back to the hotel like two or three o'clock in the morning. They'd obviously been the worst for wear. So how they got round this Christ. endurance camp. And then we got to a campsite and had to erect our own tents, which nobody really had a clue how to do. But it was if you don't get the tents up, there's nowhere to sleep tonight. We assume it was about two o'clock in the morning, pitch black. They got us out of bed and got us assembled on this camp. It was, it was dark, you couldn't see anything going on. And in front of us was a pile of bricks. Right, pick up a brick in each hand. And we proceeded to do press-ups and arm presses and everything with these bricks. And these followed us around the whole camp, This the four or five days, these bricks were always there. To the degree that at the end of the camp, um, we took a brick to Australia with us and put it on the table in the middle of the dressing room. <laughs> and this, everybody had hated this camp all the way through. And we talked about it for days afterwards, but everybody that brings it up now thinks it's one of the best things that we ever did and helped us win the, right. win the series in Australia. And that brick was the factor that was constant on the table in the dressing room all the way through the series. But that, that 
did my head in, the fact that I didn't know what was going on. And I'm, I'm not a great swimmer and I'm not great with heights. And I knew there were going to be this outward bound type thing going on. I've kept trying to get it out of Reg. I said, look, Reg, you know I don't swim and you know I'm not great on heights. So please just make sure that you look after me. He says, I'll look after you. I'll look after you. No problem. Well, I got away with the swimming, but um, they decided we had to abseil down a, a cliff face. So we're up at the top and... And I'm nervous as hell here. I'm not really enjoying this at all. But I've, I've done something similar in the past, and I learned that it, just prepare yourself. And when the times, when you feel the times right, just go then. And Monty Panathar was in front of me, and Monty was on the edge of this cliff, facing with his back down the cliff, holding onto the rope. And I watched Monty, and his feet were moving, but he wasn't going backwards. He was walking on the spot. He just couldn't <laughs> couldn't get himself to go over the edge. And I watched him for about five minutes and he, he pulled out in the end and I said, right, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> and I thought, I can't be any worse than that. And I went down and, and it was fine. Um, and the guy then said, see, you're not scared of heights. So I said, I was looking at the wall all the time and I am still scared of heights, but I just put my complete trust in you guys. Yeah. That you'd got the ropes and I was going to be okay. And everybody else started going back up for a second go. And I said, do you want to go? I said, no, it's fine. I've done it once. That's all I needed to do. Thank you very much. I'll just watch the rest of the guys. Yeah. And the rest, the rest of them were coming down head first and all sorts of stuff. But no, it was a, it was a, a memorable experience. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a, a big factor in us winning the Ashes in 2010-11 in Australia, which is the only time we managed to experience that. I, I noticed, you know, when, when, you're, when you announced you were, you were leaving, the amount of players who posted really sort of glowing tributes to you on, on social media and stuff suggests that you had a, a great relationship with them. And judging by your story about the boot camp in, in Germany, it sounds like that's the reason why you had to go through all of that with them as well. My golden rule was never ask people to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. Uh, and that was through through playing, through through anything. And And the players knew that I was, you know... I was prepared to do anything they needed to do and I would do everything I could to try and make their lives easier. Um, and as I say, I got called Uncle Phil. Familiarity was there and, and as different generations of players came through, they were told what to expect from me, I think. I, I guess guys would say, look, if you need that sorting out, Phil will look after you. And we had a fantastic relationship and, and it was great that on, on, you know, particularly some of the the victories that we had, that the manager were invited to be in the photos and, you know, when we won the Ashes in 2005 to be on the stage at Trafalgar Square with the lads. I mean, we won the Ashes in 2005 and immediately after we'd won, the marketing people came to me and said, right, you're getting on a bus at Fleet Street and we're going on a, a tour around London and we're going to Trafalgar Square. And I looked at them as though they were mad. I said, it's, it's a work day. Nobody's going to be nobody's going to be turning out in Trafalgar Square. What, what do you think is going to happen? And they said, no, no, it'll be all right. And, and I was obviously proved wrong because we got on the bus and the, the streets were crowded. Everybody in the offices was hanging out the windows. We got to Trafalgar Square and it was absolutely rammed. And we went up on a stage, uh, which is where the big screen had been, where people had been watching the game. And it was just, a, I've, I've still got a picture of that. I mean, as a memorable, as memorable a day as you'll ever have. Back to my conversation with Phil shortly, where he'll reveal all about trying to keep a lid on the post-World Cup celebrations in 10 Downing Street. But first, a word about our unsung charity partner. Leading social care charity Community Integrated Care deliver 10 million hours of care annually to people with learning disabilities, autism, mental health concerns, dementia and complex care needs. Their revolutionary inclusive volunteering model sees a partner with sporting events like the Rugby League World Cup and UEFA Women's Euro 
enabling thousands with complex barriers to enjoy sport. To find out how you can work with the charity or access their support, visit communityintegratedcare.co.uk. Now, back to the interview, as Phil describes being on the end of some less than pleasant exchanges as a POM touring down under. Probably the, the most disappointing was 2006, uh, seven, where we went and, and, and Freddie was captain and, and it, the, the tour was a complete disaster. From having been good enough to beat them in 2005, enjoyed that for a year because we got absolutely hammered. And they were never slow to call you poms and, and abuse you in Australia. So losing in Australia was one of the worst experiences because it was just non-stop, the, the barrage of, of abuse you got. After a defeat, I'd, I'd be out the next morning shifting the bags at the hotel and guys would stop and just abuse me for, you know. Really? I, I said, but mate, I'm just, about, just dealing with the bags here. <laughs> Why do you have to stop and do that? Why do you hate us so much? You know, they, just, they just couldn't help themselves abusing the poms. 2010-11, we managed to go back and, and win the Ashes. That camp had been part of that, and the planning for that camp, again, we'd sat down during the English season, and Australia had a habit of making things as difficult for you as possible. So the first game, the first practice game before the first test in Brisbane would be in Tasmania, which was a totally different climate and, and totally different pitches. So we got ahead of, our, of, of the game and decided that we were going to take enough bowlers that we could play our second string bowling attack in Tasmania and send the main bowlers to Brisbane to acclimatise, which worked perfectly. We won the game in, in Adelaide and indeed won all of our warm-up games because that was the, the mindset that we were going to, to, to play all the practice games as if we were going to win. And to win the 2010-11 series where all the practice and preparation had come to fruition, you know, we'd, over a two-year period, Andy Flower had challenged the guys to improve their stats and they'd started uh, looking at those stats, looking at the team stats, getting involved more as a team rather than individuals. Um, he challenged the batsmen who were averaging 40-45, which had been seen as acceptable in English conditions and, and, and in English team are pretty good. But he, he, he put that up against Ricky Ponting, who was averaging 70, Jaya Warden, who was averaging 70. Challenged the bowlers to hit the, the line and length more often. And with the aid of technology, we were able to always check that. The fact that we were doing that was, was proved as a, a way of sort of giving the captain something to talk to, talk about at the end of a session or beginning of a session. You know, that was a good session and this is why, because we hit our mark or because there was a great partnership. And everybody suddenly started to focus on the team and we took that to Australia with us and were very bullish about going. We'd suddenly all got new suits. We had Hugo Boss sponsored us. We all walked in, got off the plane in Australia with black Hugo Boss suits on. We went to functions at the start and talked positively about enjoying Australia and looking forward to touring Australia. There was no negativity that was associated with Australia. And what you found was there was a group of players there who probably hadn't got all the baggage of being always hammered by Australia. You'd got a new group of guys and they were really up for the challenge. To, to be able to execute everything that they'd planned, to go to Melbourne one-all on the first day, a boxing day, to bowl them out for 128 and be 129 for no wicket at the end of the day. The game was vertically won, and if we won that match, we retained the Ashes because we, we'd already got them yeah. uh, from England. I was actually in, in Melbourne that day. I was very fortunate to be travelling Australia that year, so I managed to get a few tickets. And the only one I didn't get ticket to was Perth, which was the only one England lost, I think, wasn't it? 
Yeah, Perth's not a good place for us. No. <laughs> we always lose in Perth. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Boxing Day test was one of the most special memories I'll have because they see that many cricket fans in a stadium suddenly go silent. And there was only the England fans left by the end of the day, wasn't it? Because then Strauss and Cook came on and yeah. just, he just gobbled up their score before the day had finished, I think. It was an yeah. unbelievable performance. Unbelievable is the right word because you would never have considered that we could be that dominant of an Australian team. Mm. As I say, the, the planning and the preparation, you know, people ask me, one of the things I've done since I've retired is look back and, and see what the common factors are in the teams that have been successful and the teams that haven't. Uh, good senior players is one, but planning and preparation definitely is, is part of it. And, and Andy Flower, to his credit, for that Ashes series, he nailed it completely. And you can see now how successful he's been in all these franchise competitions. You know, he's, his attention to detail is, is, is meticulous. He's a top man. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing. I make it that you've seen six head coaches come and go, 11 test captains. You know, you must have witnessed all of these different mindsets and ethos. And I guess you had to adapt your role really to suit you know the boss each time i yeah, guess very much so if you're spot on there and that, that i consider that my they weren't going to change they were the boss and it was up to me to fill in the gaps and and whatever they were comfortable with then i would work accordingly so pete moores and ashley giles were guys that that i i mean pete moores i'd been captain of at worcester ashley giles i was coach at warwickshire when he came into the side they knew me as a coach as well and they involved me totally in the cricket and the cricket management and, and, and I'd sit in on all the cricket meetings when they were talking with the coaches and sometimes have some input. Trevor Bailey's had Paul Farbrace as assistant coach. They tended to deal with the cricket and I didn't get very involved in the, in the cricket side of things. Andy Flower obviously knew me as a, and I've known him since he was 16. There were times where I would get involved in the cricket or Andy would ask my view um, but there were equally times where Andy didn't quite see why I needed to know something, you know, and it was just me trying to get the whole picture all the time. But yeah, I saw that as my role. My role was to fill in the gaps. Over time, as we got more and more support staff on board, I became less and less important to them on the cricket side. And at times that unsettled me. There were a couple of times where I thought, am I really enjoying this anymore? Because I'm not involved in the cricket. I'm just doing logistics. You know, I looked at a couple of other jobs from time to time and then decided not to go. And then there'd be a change in, in the coach and suddenly I'm the most important guy to him again. And, and it sort of went in cycles like that. And my biggest disappointment really from the time with England was that we were never able to build a dynasty like Australia had done. Right. I'd just been watching the World Cup and, and seeing previous World Cups and how, uh, how dominant Australia were for a long period of time. And, and that side played across you know, one-day and test formats. For, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, they were just the top dog. And we went in peaks and troughs. You know, we, we, we built it. We were rock bottom when Duncan took over and we built up to winning the Ashes in 2005. Went through a bit of a slump. Managed to win the Ashes again in 2010 and became the number one side in the world. Went through a bit of a slump again. The one-day series, we, we were terrible in the 2015 World Cup and lost to several smaller teams. And that was rock bottom. Built back up to... 2019 which was a four-year journey we just seemed to go in peaks and troughs mm. and, and always let the seem to let the team get old together and then had to suddenly start start afresh and build a new team and we never quite got that quite right where we were always the top team and that you know that was disappointing and you know there were occasions where outside influences like social media and and things with the you know when the team broke up after 2006-7 you know the ashes and kp leaving and there were messy things that, that happened that was disappointing, you know, because it had been such a solid unit. 
So that was probably the regret that we weren't able to maintain it for, you know, a really prolonged period. Yeah. One thing I wanted to, to speak to you about, you mentioned about the t- team morale and things when you were away. But obviously, cricket and mental health has been a, a, a topic that seems to have come to the fore a bit more. Obviously, we've got a current test captain, Ben Stokes, very open about it. But before him, there was famously Triscothic and, and Trot struggle at a time maybe when there was less focus on the issue. In your time with, with the team, did you see that subject, people pay more attention to it in terms of getting psychologists in and you know, just having an acceptance that, that this is a, a tough job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was obviously around for the Triscothic and, and Trot issues. And the Triscothic thing came out of the blue. You know, we, nobody had ever really encountered that before. And we, we didn't really know. How, there was nobody on our management team that was trained to cope with it. It was, it was a bit, um, you know, scary when it happened. And to see Trotty, who was one of the most composed guys in the world, sort of be all at sea, you know, he... He put he over practiced in the end. He put himself in a position. He, he went into a, against bowling machines when we were practicing in Sydney when we first arrived, just being peppered by bouncers all the time, and and was getting worse and worse. And and yet he'd been one of the most composed batsmen that we'd got. And I don't think they travel with a sports psychologist all the time now, but with communications now, I think they just insist that. There's one available to you through England if you want, but if you've got someone that you privately speak to or someone at your county that you particularly relate to, by all means, do that. But we just need to make sure that everybody has somebody that they can talk to. So they're very aware of that, and and there's always a doctor now away on tour with us who would keep an eye on that side of things if there isn't an actual psychologist on duty all the time. But yeah, the, the medical side has improved dramatically. I used to sit in on the interviews for the doctors, and, and the, I remember once saying, you know, I caught myself because I was about to say we've been very lucky with our appointment of doctors. But it wasn't luck because the people that did the interviewing, and I was just one of four or five, did their job well. They picked guys who had got a background in sport, who understood players, understood the challenges, and, and could help with this side of things as, as well as the, you know, the, the physical injury side of things. So no, I think they, they cover that side brilliantly now. And, and through COVID, that was a, a, a real challenge. And the medical team were fantastic. You know, you, you couldn't have asked for anything better. It was not fun being confined in hotels in Southampton and Old Trafford, which were the only two grounds where we got hotels on the ground. But the, the medical cover there, the nurses, the tests that had to be done, everything was, was run spot on. So the medical team are exceptional now with, with England Wales Cricket Board. And so what would you say were your most treasured moments? I mean, obviously we've mentioned the 2019 World Cup, but there was the, the 2010... T20 World Cup as the Ashes what what stands out for you the 2010 World Cup sort of came upon us by chance it, it, it was it was good but it wasn't something that we'd we'd gone planning that we were good enough to win uh, it was a special moment to beat Australia in Barbados with loads of England fans there was a pretty special moment I must admit I was involved in 11 Ashes series last one was tied uh, we lost five and losses were quite heavy ones but we managed to win five, four at home and, and one away while I was involved. 2005, the first one. The 2019 World Cup was a special one because we couldn't have got any lower than we did at 2000, in the 2015 World Cup. And to start that journey with Owen Morgan and, and Trevor Bayliss, but I mean, it was Owen, Trevor was the coach, but it was Owen's team. Um, and he was given the captaincy even after that 2015 World Cup. And his relationship with Baz McCullum, I think, 
was a big factor in England starting to play the same way that New Zealand were playing. Right. You know, we'd got we'd got beaten by a couple of teams who were playing a different form of cricket. You know, we we were still picking our best test test players and expecting them to play one day cricket. And I'd always believed that that should be possible. We were in Australia and we finished the one day series. And I remember sending home Cook, Bell and Trot and, and bringing in guys who were 2020 players. And I'm thinking, why are we sending our three best batsmen home? But they liked being in too much. They liked defending their wicket too much. You know, they, they couldn't unlock this, play shots at the start. Um, they could play more aggressively than they did in tests, but not quite to the same degree that, you know, and we went on a warm-up for that World Cup to Abu Dhabi and... Keyswetter and Lum were the opening batsmen playing against us, and they smashed us out the park. And there was a change of tune, and they event they came into the the squad to go and play in that uh, in that T20 World Cup in the West Indies. And and with KP having a great series as well, the, the top order just sort of took care of itself. Yeah. We mastered the conditions really well there. Um, the West Indies is a place where it can often be quite windy. The guys decided to bowl slower ball bounces as a way of restricting because the, the square boundaries were quite long and people were hitting into the wind and there was no other way to try and score off it. And that helped a lot. And I can re- picture us now when we won the final against Australia, running onto the field with the players um, to celebrate. They were the, the, the main team ones. I mean, I, I remember it all as, as something fantastic that, that I was proud of doing. Uh, I worked for 47 years in cricket and never worked in a in an office. You know, I always worked in a dressing room environment, either football or cricket. And the, the little incidents where I was, co- you know, working with the players on cricket and was able to help them do certain things. My memory is a funny thing. You know, there are, people ask me about certain things, and and I can't, have, I don't have a single memory of a, of a certain tour, or I get confused between which tour of India that happened in. But then you have isolated memories where it's as clear as a bell. I can picture myself in an indoor school in Johannesburg throwing round the wicket to Owen Morgan to try and replicate Mornay Morkel bowling at him and having a, just a fantastic session with him for about half an hour where I really challenged him. And, and those things are special to me, you know. And, I mean, the captains that, that, that I worked under, um, NASA was ideal at the start because we had to be tough and uncompromising, hard to beat. Handing over to Vaughan to be a bit more adventurous was the right time and the right thing to do. Owen Morgan was definitely the best captain. It was his team. He led by example, which is something that I would try to do. When I look back on the teams that I played in and how I captained the side, I look back on how Owen does it and was pleased to see that some of the things that he does were things that I tried to do as well. One of my favourite pictures is my wife, Chris, and I were on the field celebrating after the 2019 World Cup, and I got a picture with Owen, me and Chris, with the World Cup in, in between us. So Fantastic. Special, a special photo. I know, what an, what an unbelievable end to that match as well. It was just you couldn't have scripted it any more dramatically, really. The, the interesting thing, after that match, the, the celebrations were going on, and this is a, an insight into how my job was different to what everybody else was doing. Ashley sidled up to me as director of cricket and, and said, uh, Phil, will you just tell the lads they've got to be on duty at the Oval at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for a coaching session with a load of kids? I said, you what? <laughs> you, you want me to tell them that? This is in the dressing room. I actually had a row with Graham Thorpe because I did impart that information and Thorpe started having a go at me. and miss- I said, Thorpe, just shut up with you. I've got to do my job. <laughs> How did that news go down? They just ignored it, basically. Yeah. And I couldn't, I wasn't convinced they'd all taken it on board. So that left me with the issue. So then I had to go because at our hotel, we'd arranged a, a party. And we were 
I don't know, two or three o'clock, I went to bed from this party. And, and I'd got no idea if the players were all... So I'm sending messages at, at eight o'clock in the morning saying, remember, you've got to be on the bus at 10 o'clock. And we turn up the oval. Obviously, everybody's looking for the worst for wear. And there's a load of kids, but there's even more parents. And the parents were more of an issue than the kids were because they all wanted autographs and pictures. Yeah. And So the players went down and did their, their duty with a bit of coaching with the kids. And bless Surrey County Cricket Club, the oval. They always look after the players well there. And the dressing room's quite luxurious dressing there. They've got some black leather sofas that people can lounge around in. So I eventually get the lads up off the pitch we walk into the dressing room and sorry, bless them, have put some beers on. <laughs> so the lads collapse into the armchairs and start drinking again. Why and, not? Uh, so it was hell to get them out of the dressing room. <laughs> we got back to the hotel about two o'clock and they went straight in the bar. Now at six o'clock, we're due at number 10 Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister. And I've got to get them out of the bar at six o'clock to get them on the bus. And they just got changed. So they're well-oiled by the time we get to Downing Street. And we go in and we have the function and we have some chats in the garden and all this sort of stuff. We've got to walk from Downing Street to where the bus is parked. So you've, you've got that long walk that, that you've seen many politicians do and prime ministers do. We've managed to get everybody gathered just behind the front door. And there's, a, there's sort of a reception area there. There's a piano. There's people leaning on the piano and it was moving and they were knocking pictures off the walls and... <laughs> And they're singing, we are the champions. And I'm, I said, Owen, please, <laughs> just put your captain's hat on for a minute. We've got to get from here to the bus and we cannot walk out singing, we are the champions. We've got to get a grip of this. And to his credit, he managed to get some sort of order and they got on the bus before they started singing again. <laughs> Straight back to hotel and on it again. <laughs> Many thanks to Phil for taking the time out to speak to me and also to Luke Thornhill and Donald Nanstad at Lincoln City for putting me in touch with their former player. If you know of someone who'd make a good subject for a future Unsung podcast, get in touch with a recommendation at unsungpodcast.com. Unsung is produced by Matt Cheney. Artwork is by Matt Walker and the executive producer is Sam Barry. My name is Alexis James and I'll be back soon with a new guest from behind the scenes in sport. Thanks for listening and catch you next time on Unsung. Unsung.